This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. In fact, a few of you have got in touch recently to say that as a result of listening to the podcast, you're now listening to the radio, so welcome aboard. Right, coming up on today's episode then, haven't they learned our lesson? Referendums are spreading around the world. Everyone seems to be having them, having them in Australia, they talk about having them in France, they're even having one in Blackpool. Are they a good idea? Or was Margaret Thatcher right to say they were basically the work of uh, dictators? That's coming up in our big thing in a moment. But first, when is the right time to judge whether or not something has been a success? There's only two people to ask. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, and as it's Tuesday, we say hello to Times Columnist Danny Finkelstein. Hello, Danny. Hello. And uh, Deputy Opinion Editor and Columnist at the FT, Miranda Green. Hello, Miranda. Hello, Matt. Hello, Danny. Nice to have you both Hi. back with us on a Tuesday. <laughs> now, here's a sort of a big picture question I want to try and uh, to, to wrangle with. How long do we have to wait before we can judge failure or success? So there's been sort of lots of data out in the last uh, couple of weeks. There was the economic data, which looked at... Uh, well, the ONS upgraded uh, how the economy had done since the pandemic. Turned out uh, that far from being one of the worst uh, countries, uh, we're actually one of the best in terms of recovering, with the economy now bigger than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, similarly, in terms of excess deaths and so on, uh, actually things weren't as bad as, you know, quite mid, mid-table, uh, has to be said. Quite a long way, uh, Miranda, from when uh, the New York Times dubbed the UK Plague Island. So how um, how long should we wait, Miranda, before judging these things? Well, we don't want to be in the kind of Chairman Mao situation, do we, of saying it's too early to tell whether the French Revolution was a success or not. <laughs> because, uh, because you need the right data to make the right policies. So that's the problem with these early estimates of how well the economy is doing, <laughs> excuse me, frog in my throat, that then have to be revised in such a dramatic way, either one way or the other, because it happens in both directions sometimes. So I think the problem here is that, you know, if you've got businesses trying to make plans and Whitehall trying to make plans on how to, you know, 
form economic policy coming out of such an enormous crisis like the pandemic and the lockdowns, which were a problem for businesses, it turned out that the initial survey data, which businesses and other sorts of organisations had returned, was too pessimistic for what the picture eventually turned out to be. And significantly in two big sectors, one, the wholesale sector, and the other, healthcare. And of course, there was this huge, enormous growth in the activity of the healthcare sector because of the pandemic. Yeah. And that wasn't showing up in the initial survey returns. So the ONS, you know, has had to say, well, actually, we're not an outlier in terms of recovering from the, the pandemic experience in the economy. We're actually doing pretty well. And they've also had to say they'll look again at how they use these initial survey returns and whether it's actually becoming slightly misleading. I mean, we did have an inquiry about seven years ago, I think it was, which a former senior member of the MPC actually looked at the use of economics data in the UK and whether there was a case for doing it slightly differently. So it'd be interesting to see what the statistics regulator says when it looks at this question. But, you know, we do need timely data on how the economy's doing, you know, not not for reasons of setting a narrative, although obviously I'm sure that Danny will go on to explain why that's so important in politics, but also because it matters for devising the right economic policies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Danny, now I remember during, during the, the depths of the pandemic when you were coming on, actually you got quite a bit of grief from uh, from some listeners when you said we need to wait and see. You weren't sure that actually we were we would turn out to be a world leader in awfulness. Yeah, I, I, I did. And um, I, I thought it was actually, I think this, the fact that we finished in the middle of a pack, which isn't actually an exceptional performance. There's lots of reasons to think, you know, maybe we could have done better than that uh, on excess mortality. Um, I thought it was blindingly obvious. And that that, that, that was that, that was a highly likely outcome. And I couldn't believe how much um, how, how controversial it was to say that people were extremely um, fixed on tr- on trying to argue that we had the worst death toll in the world, as if that was some, you know, as if if only they could prove that it would it would kind of make some sort of progress. And um, I, I I feel it's something that everybody needs to reflect on for a couple of reasons. One set is what Miranda said, but the second is for people like me. Who are who were sceptical, you know, or antagonistic to Boris Johnson, who voted to remain in the referendum, who uh, are concerned about um, some trends on the right uh, uh, in various different ways. We've got to retain our own sense of perspective, our respect for the truth, our ability to see things in proportion, our willingness to wait for facts to unfold. And I, I feel that sometimes those things are lacking, and I'm afraid it was lacking in this case. And you know, to to take uh, um, uh, extreme positions based on small amounts of data for essentially propagandist reasons and persuade oneself massively that it must be true because you dislike Boris Johnson is exactly the politics that the centre is designed to try to reject. Um, so I was pretty distressed by it because I thought at the time it was just. Um, you know, you remember, for example, Matt, there was a, a lot of reporting about how Dominic Cummings was deliberately trying to kill old people for something related to, um, you know, the Tory vote. It didn't even make sense in its own terms. Um, and uh, there, there were a lot of reporting about the things that he did or didn't say. And that all turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, it wasn't what his position was even. Right. And and so um, 
we've really got to learn from this, particularly people who are coming from my broad position. Because if we do not, um, if we're not people who stress sense of proportion, who stress facts, who wait patiently for things to unfold, who reject narratives just because they're convenient and support the things that we say, then who is going to do that in politics? Um, it's interesting that that point you make, Danny, is that if your starting point is do I like the person rather than is what they're doing working? And actually that, that you know, cuts across... But that cuts across politics, doesn't it? In the, in the way that you know, when you when you come to vote, the, if it's all about personality and not about competence and record, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it was just about that. I think people could sense, which was unquestionably true, that Boris Johnson, even at that point, that Boris Johnson's premiership was chaotic. Uh, that some of the relationships were dysfunctional. It was clear, as Dominic Cummings, I think, has argued, that there were also some problems with the machine. There were lots of different reasons to believe that government was not organised in an optimal way to achieve the best outcomes. And I think it didn't achieve the best outcomes. Uh, but what, what was was not true was that it was uh, among the worst in Europe. And one, you know, one thing that I would say is if you finish in the middle of the pack, it's quite possible that these uh, that, that the outcomes were were random. In other words, they didn't reflect anything that we did. Is that's only one explanation of yeah. that position. Um, right? It's not the only explanation. But I I'm just urging uh, a nuanced view even when the facts are a bit inconvenient because people would I think have liked it to be the case that Boris Johnson's chaos uh, led directly to sort of observably much worse outcomes than uh, than other countries achieved because it would it would kind of reinforce arguments but to my mind the only thing that should matter to people um, who, who are trying to make the country make sort of gentle, moderate, but sensible progress is whether it's a fact or not. And I think people, you know, it was so logical that if we, that, that, uh, that people would make all sorts of different mistakes in different countries and some of those would average out against each other. And that if you went early with, um, with lockdowns, um, you would have some problems that would pop up later. Uh, and if you didn't go early, you would have uh, this exponential growth at the beginning. It was so obvious that there were no, that it was difficult to get exactly the right solution on the, on, all the time consistently through it and yet this didn't seem to be accepted and i understand why that was the case yeah. I, I can see it and empathize with it in some ways but it's to be avoided there, there is just a little wrinkle in that though isn't there which is that we're not going to know for a while what some of the trade-offs were in terms of the facts from the lockdowns and from the fact that the nhs just had to sort of ditch a whole bunch of other things that it was doing in order to concentrate on the covid crisis and keep the wards safe from covid uh, so 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 you know in the sense of i totally agree with everything danny said but actually it's probably only in in, in a few years time that we will know the cost to people with other conditions yeah of of what happened in the NHS, so that's 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 another thing that we'll have to factor into our assessments. I suppose the, the, that's the, correct. I was going to say the thing that happened on the other side is that when when you've got Boris Johnson boasting that we're world beating, world leading, global outliers in the positive, that sort of invites criticism to prove. The opposite. They're actually it's infuriating. I agree, and I think I think some people were pushed by that infuriating nonsense to themselves. Then engage in in probably less slightly less nonsensical, but nevertheless incorrect um, uh, uh, analysis. 
and that and I just you know I just think that ought to be avoided by the way um while we're on this subject of of different narratives that are undermined by figures obviously one of the things that this um that this data questions is whether or not those people who were talking about the immense economic cost of covid being worth the uh worth the death reduction are relying upon what turns out to be false figures about how big the impact on the economy oh, that's was. interesting uh, yeah so the sort of people who said well actually we should have let more people die because it would have saved the economy um uh, essentially that the the, the economy if the economy wasn't as badly hit as we thought well, then and, and it may and it may be and it may be because this was part of the argument it may be that the decision to lock down the economy um was was better for the economy that to, to, uh, in the longer run than it would have been to let the disease um run riot um uh, with the impact that that would have had on the economy uh, so even on the economy this argument may turn out to be incorrect but these figures these figures challenge everyone's narrative i concentrated on the bit that sort of challenged the narrative of people like me in other words people who were skeptical or dismayed by the way that Boris Johnson organised his government and were therefore ready to believe that the result of that was automatically a disastrous performance but sometimes maybe didn't you know allow for the fact that the response to the pandemic wasn't just Boris Johnson it was also Chris Whitties and Patrick Balance and all the way along I was thinking to myself how likely is it that those incredibly capable people are achieving you know demonstrably worse yeah. uh, outcomes but it didn't seem that that it was true it wasn't it seems true that their advice was being yeah. routinely rejected by boris johnson so I, I i think this is an important correction which is which is vital to understand on other issues not just this one and actually the, the best reaction to the the correction and the revised figures is for us to think what did what did we get wrong rather than going ah Told you so, and then engaging in the same row just from the opposite end of the telescope. Right up next. Can I, can yes, I just, sorry, Matt, can I just say? I, I think I found the record-breaking uh, sort of GDP growth error, by the way, which my colleague John Byrne Murdoch found yeah. at the end of last week, which is that in Ireland in 2015 they thought GDP growth was 1.4 percent, and it turned out afterwards that it was 21.4 percent because a whole bunch of tech companies and pharma companies flooding into Dublin. So you know. We're not the only country that also gets well, these initial yeah, figures yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really, really, really <laughs> wrong, you know. Well, yeah, we, as, te we tend to be more pessimistic, though, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And yeah, that's the other thing. We're really bad at noticing things happening in other countries. Uh, whether it's, you know, G Germany's about to go in, in, into recession. Is that all over the front uh, front pages? No. Whereas, you know, if, if Britain was, was about to... I mean, I suppose that is to do with geography, but yeah, it's a reminder that... Um, yeah, we, we ignore the things which are happening in other parts of uh, other parts of the world. Now, here's a question. Does it matter that Keir Starmer is being outpolled by the Labour Party? So, uh, in the latest YouGov polling, Keir Starmer's got a negative approval rating of minus 20, whereas Labour's approval rating is minus 11. Flip side is uh, Rishi Sunak... Uh, is polling better than the Tories. He's on minus 41, while the Conservative Party overall is on minus 48. Is this a problem, Miranda? Is it, is it a sign that actually, come the election, Keir Starmer might be a bit of a drag on the number of people who will switch to Labour? Um, drag, I think, might be overstating it, but the leader and whether people actually feel a, not a, so much attracted, but that they can trust that leader and that they're going to take the country in the right direction is a key ingredient into vote, in voting choice. And, you know, Ipsos Mori 
you know, always talk about the things that really matter to, to people. And, and the leader is always one of the top three things that they're thinking about. I would say <laughs> that compared to the Sunak and the Conservative ratings in that polling, you know, he's still in a much, much better place uh, than, than Sunak, even though Sunak is out po polling his own party. Yeah, of course, yeah. Sunak is really recently in the job. You know, it's it's only coming up to a year, right? So, you know, Starmer's had to battle the left. He's had a really complicated job to do since becoming Labour Party leader. And it's possible that some of the things that come out in the focus groups are affecting those ratings for him. For example, you know, he had to promise the left all sorts of things to order to win the leadership. And he's now ruthlessly kind of excised them from the party and made them, including his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, ex-Labour people. You know, so he's had to go through the mill in a really quite short time span since becoming leader. And that may meet, make people a little bit unsure of where he himself personally stands and where his kind of political heart beats. And I think that's a problem for him, particularly if you sort of compare him to Tony Blair, because you knew that Tony Blair's heart was beating in time with the British public. Starmer's probably doesn't. He probably has to think about it first before he makes an utterance on something. I think that's probably all feeding into it. Yeah, people can sort of slightly sense that as well. Well, talk, talk, talking of the Tony Blair tribute act, um, I don't know if you've seen this, Danny, that they've released the... Uh, the uh, conference brochure for the Labour Party conference has got a very moody photo of Keir Starmer on the front cover, which lots of people have pointed out looks quite a lot like the 1997 New Labour Manifesto, which had a rather moody photo of Tony Blair on it. Although we were talking in the office earlier and um, uh, Kate McCann pointed out the big difference is that Tony Blair's looking directly at you, whereas uh, Keir Starmer's looking off to the left. Read into that what you will. Uh, <laughs> obviously, they're trying to promote... Um, Keir Starmer because he's got the weaker of the two figures. I was trying to think, look, obviously one of these figures is likely to be ahead of the other. That's just maths. Um, so uh, which would you pick if you were Keir Starmer? Would you rather be ahead of your party or your party ahead of you? So I think it's quite an achievement for Keir Starmer that the party is ahead of him. Because after all, the problem he had was that Labour's brand was in difficulty. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's actually the main job he's settled for himself so I, I wonder whether he wouldn't be quite satisfied you know my general principle in answering these questions which you often get which is you know is is x or y a problem for Keir Starmer is nothing much of a problem for Keir Starmer at the moment and we often to get any problems he has in proportion he's doing incredibly well the party's doing incredibly well it looks set fair to win the general election so you you in those circumstances he has few problems clearly Lack of enthusiasm for him is is one of the things that holds back Labour, and it may for him to alter that because of his, um, you know, I don't think he's the best public performer, despite the fact that I actually, um, you know, think highly of him as an intelligent person. I don't think he's the best public performer. Uh, he's managed to do to the Labour Party what. Uh, um, you know, what he'd want, which is to put it in a stronger brand position. It's not brilliantly strong. That's still a reasonable negative rating, but it's quite a lot stronger um, than it was. And it's stronger, than, much stronger than the Tories. So I'm not sure I, you know, I think I'd probably pick that of the, you know, given you're going to have either the problem the party's ahead of him or he's ahead of the party. I think I'd probably prefer it if I were him, if the party <laughs> was ahead of me. It's a good point, though, actually, isn't it, Miranda? Given how bad the Labour brand was, in 2019, after the departure of Jeremy Corbyn? Totally. And I mean, you know, the sort of voting intention polls now show a sort of consistent lead of about 20 points. 
in, to, in, in, the, in favor of the Labour Party, which given where they were under Jeremy Corbyn is, is absolutely phenomenal. But I do think it draws attention, and this is a, a bone that Danny and I pick over from time to time, it draws attention to Starmer's remaining tasks, right, in order to kind of seal the deal with the electorate, which are to try and give them a positive reason for choosing him, other than that he's not kind of chaos and incompetence and five prime ministers within no time at all, which is what the other party has has given us. So, you know, I don't think Starmer's, you know, lack of oomph and charisma is too much of a problem. You know, a little bit, a little bit less drama is probably what the country's crying out for. But he does need to set out some sort of positive stall. And I don't know if Danny so the problem is- I'm being a sentimental idiot for saying that. But- <laughs> Go on, Danny. I don't, I don't think you're being either of those things, but I think I think Keir Starmer, uh, to improve his own rating, would need to seem um, kind of more enthusiastic and impassioned by uh, the things that he's arguing for. And the problem is, I don't think he's that strongly in favour of his own policy. I think he can see the intellectual <laughs> merit of the reassuring people, but his entire career and the things that have motivated him have been to be, being somewhat to the left of you know, slightly to the left of Ed Miliband is where I'd put his politics on a consistent basis. He's never said anything massively interesting politically, but he, but that is roughly speaking yeah, where he's yeah. been. I've known of him since he was in his 20s, and that's where he's always been. Um, and I, I just think uh, if he probably was that impassioned, he might, you know, start moving the Labour Party to the left, thus remove, thus reducing the Labour Party's brand. Yeah. Um, yes. Miranda Green from the FT and Danny Finkelstein from the Times. And of course, you can read Danny in the Times every Wednesday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, do you want another referendum? Vote now. 
called the alternative vote. And the alternative Why? vote system, the alternative Why vote it? system... It doesn't in Australia. Because the choice is in your hands. Well, what I think You're people want us games. to do is to leave the European Union on well, October 31st. we all know that. Ah, oh, good, good times. Good, good times. Referendums are pretty rare throughout most of the 20th century. The UK, we've only actually had three fully nationwide referendums. The one in 1975, the vote on staying in uh, what then became the EU. The 2016 vote on uh, leaving. And a vote in 2011 on electoral reform. Who, who can forget that? Uh, when I was at the Independent on Sunday, we had a street party in favour of the alternative vote, and nobody came. Uh, there was obviously also the uh, Scottish referendum in uh, 2014, which we just heard from there as well. Uh, overall, there have been around 600 referendums held worldwide since the 1970s. They exploded in popularity in the 1990s. Switzerland in particular, love them. They had 11 referendums last year alone. But So why are they becoming more popular? Do they solve more problems they create? Is it a way of politicians abdicating responsibility to take uh, big decisions in the national interest? Well, what we thought we'd do is get right around the world. It's been a long time since we fired up the plane. We couldn't afford the fuel, frankly. Uh, and there was all that trouble with the air traffic control. So it's all back on uh, Chorley Airlines. Let's hop on the plane and find out. Yeah, put your seats in the upright position. We're off to France, first of all. Uh, David Chazan is a journalist for the Times in Paris. Uh, joins us now. Hi, David. Hi, Matt. So uh, it, uh, uh, you've got Emmanuel Macron uh, struggling without a parliamentary majority. Um, how could he use uh, reference to break that political deadlock in France? Well, he's mooted the idea to the opposition of holding referendums because he's trying to drum up support from opposition parties, particularly from the centre-right, for new laws, uh, tougher laws on immigration, which is a very hot topic here as it is in the UK. Um, but so far, he's not having much success in reaching an agreement on that. And at the same time, uh, the left is agitating, still agitating for a referendum on President Macron's pension reforms, even though the increase in the statutory retirement age has already gone through. So you've got demands from both the left and the right, and Macron toying with the idea of holding referendums as a way of breaking the parliamentary deadlock. I mean, I suppose the, the maybe the lesson for previous referendums is you only, you only call them if you think that actually the public support your position. Is it where where are the public on on the question of like his pension reforms or or on immigration? Would he emerge as the winner if you like? Because you're not going to call a referendum if you're going to lose the argument. Well, I think uh, on immigration, the public overwhelmingly would back tougher laws because they're seeing an influx of people coming in. A lot of people are very, very worried about the future of France. Can the social services cope, etc., etc.? Um, but certainly on pension reforms, it would be a disaster for Macron if a referendum were held because the majority of the public still... Uh, are still clearly opposed to his increase in the pension age, and that's been shown repeatedly in in opinion polls. And, and what would the if there were to be it? I know the question has sort of been put from the right. If there was a referendum on migration, <clears throat> what's the question? 
Well, that's the big issue, and that's what Macron's been <laughs> trying to agree on with the centre-right. But the question would essentially be, do you want to make it more difficult for people to come into France? Do you make it, do you want to toughen up citizenship laws? And what, what the right-wing parties are looking for is a way of stopping the children of immigrants from automatically being granted French citizenship if they're born in France. But that's anathema for the centrist group uh, of President Macron. Uh, just finally, before I let you go, David, overall the chances of the, the voters in France having any sort of referendum in the foreseeable future? Uh, I think they're quite low, to be honest, yeah. because I think that the French political elites looked at the Brexit referendum and they said, <laughs> that is not a road we want to go down on. And they still remember a referendum held in France on a new constitution for the European Union, which was rejected by French voters, subsequently put through in a somewhat different form by the EU, uh, without a plebiscite or a referendum. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. But, but they got the wrong answer. They, they they found a way around it anyway. David, really good speech to you. David Chazan there is a journalist of the Times in Paris. But it's back on the plane. And we're heading to Poland now. Uh, Paulina Olzanka is a journalist of the Times there. Hi, Paulina. Hi, Matt. How are you going? Uh, very good. Uh, very good. So you have got a referendum in mid-October in Poland. Uh, what's been voted on? Uh, well, for key political questions, how Poles feel about the privatisation of state assets, how they feel about immigration quotas, what they think the age of retirement should be, and whether they feel that the war between Poland and Belarus that has been built to keep out migrants should be removed. However, it's being held on the same day as the parliamentary elections. And so what what impact will that have? And it will it be binding on whoever wins those parliamentary elections? Uh, it should be. If there is a if 50% of voters turn out to vote in the referendum, um, yes, theoretically it should be binding. The issue here is that the referendum is largely understood to be deployed uh, in a very cynical way so as to actually sneak in questions in the polling booths that may actually sway voters to vote in a particular way in the parliamentary election. So the referendum here is actually not the most important thing because you still need to get a 50%, reach a 50% threshold to for that referendum to be binding. Only about 35% of polls say that they will actually vote in the referendum. However, if you're going to the voting booth on that day, you're reading questions that are extremely loaded in language, which I'm happy to read out in a moment. The, the, the assumption there is that it may actually affect the outcome of the elections because it's bypassing the normal blackout laws that you have 24 hours before the election, so you're not allowed to campaign during those 24 hours. Uh, there's also some commentators have said that this is also a way that Poland can use uh, state money for campaigning purposes rather than party allocated funds. It's really, uh, it's really interesting. That. So the, basically, your your point is that it, it's less about whether or not the, the 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 referendum question is passed. But if you've got, as you were saying, was it two two questions, referendum questions on essentially borders and immigration, yeah. that just raises the salience of immigration when people are going in and voting in the parliamentary elections. Give us an example then of one of the lo what you said was one of the loaded questions. 
So do you support the admission of thousands of illegal immigrants from the Middle East and Africa under the forced relocation policy imposed by European bureaucracy? So this is not an, a not leading question, but <laughs> even the more prosaic questions, for example, around the nationalization or the privatization of state assets is also loaded. So do you support the sale of state assets to foreign entities leading to the loss of control over strategic sectors of the economy? Wow. This is not even a matter within political discourse, but if you are somebody that is going to the elections, you read this question, of course, it raises certain existential concerns. That's fa- absolutely fascinating. That well, that, that's mid October. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Really interesting. Pauline Ol Zanka, uh, journalist from the Times, there joining us in Poland. Well, we've got a, the plane's about to take off, so we need to head back to the airports. Yeah, we're off to Kazakhstan now. Well, apparently, he's absolutely bucketing it down. So we need a right mixture of clothes to take for this. Uh, Joanna uh, Lillis is in Istana for us. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I'm in Almaty, actually. Oh, sorry, but I apologise. I apologise. Um, so, uh, you um, uh, tell us about the referendum which is happening in Kazakhstan. So, um, in Kazakhstan, we're expecting um, a referendum on nuclear power. Um, now, this referendum was called by the president, um, or at least announced by the president earlier this month when he gave his State of the Nation address. And um, it's going to be quite um, contentious. Now, um, as I'm sure many listeners know, Kazakhstan's not a true democracy. Um, elections tend to be swung, tend to be rigged, tend to be um, always giving, giving the outcomes that the authorities want. Um, so it's actually quite interesting that President Kasim Jomar Tokayev has decided to hold a referendum on a topic, um, on a subject where many of the people... Um, in Kazakhstan are actually, you know, against um, nuclear power. And clearly what the government wants is a yes vote for nuclear power. Um, the reason for that is that Kazakhstan suffers from chronic energy shortages, uh, despite the fact that it's a major oil producer and also produces gas. I mean, there are many reasons for that that we don't really have time to go into, I'm sure. Um, but the fact is that the government needs a yes vote so that it can solve this energy crisis that Kazakhstan has suffered over several winters, which involves blackouts and, um, you know, um, leads to a lot of public discontent. Um, now, I think the, the key question here is why has the president of this authoritarian country decided to go to the people? Ah, um, that, you, <laughs> you read my mind. I was about to say that. If, if the elections are basically rigged and he can do what he likes anyway, what's the point of holding a referendum? Can't you just do what he wants on nuclear power? Right. Um, well, that's the key question. I think that's something that's inter- interesting many people in Kazakhstan. And I think to answer that question, we need to go back to last year. Last year, um, um, Kazakhstan with- witnessed some major, major protests, um, uh, which began as um, a sort of peaceful protest over socio-economic discontent. And um, we can see how energy crisis can fit into that. Um, and um and in those protests were, were peaceful in the beginning, hijacked by violent forces, turned violent and ended with the deaths of over 200 people. Um, to move on from that, the president um, said that in the future he was going to be a more listening kind of president. He was going to listen to the people. And he also promised that on important questions, he would go to the country uh, and hold a referendum. Now, he's already held one referendum. Um, and that was on a constitutional reform following those protests. But again, this was just kind of... Um, bulldoze through really um but now we're talking about something completely different now many people in kazakhstan feel really really strongly about nuclear power they do in many countries but um let me explain why in kazakhstan this is so very sensitive um for for 40 years from the 1940s 
Um, Kazakhstan was a nuclear testing ground for the Soviet Union. Moscow, the Kremlin, exploding hundreds of uh, nuclear explosions on the steps of Kazakhstan, leaving a devastating uh, environmental and um, impact and also impact on people's health. And there are still people in that part of Kazakhstan in the east, um, the northeast, um, who suffer from the health consequences of that. People born, born deformed, people who, you know, ca get cancer very early in life. And so you can imagine how people feel about nuclear power in Kazakhstan. Um, the government itself over the last 30 years of independence has constantly stressed the damage that nuclear explosions um, did to Kazakhstan. Now, of course, it's a different thing to have nuclear power. But nuclear power is a very sensitive topic. Um, so I think what's interesting here is, um, is the government going to be able to secure the yes vote that it needs without resorting to rigging? Yeah. Is it going to be able to swing public opinion? Now, that's a big question. And if not, is that going to lead to, again, you know, the kind of protest that we saw last year? It's absolutely fascinating, that. Really good to speak to you. That's uh, Joanna Lillis joining us live from Kazakhstan. Uh, well, our tour of the globe continues. We'll hop back on the plane just while we're waiting on the... Uh, taxing to the runway in the chair in front of you you'll see a pamphlet with a number of fantastic products being advertised i'll be coming down the aisle over the next couple of minutes to take your order this is times radio uh, very good morning it's matt chorley on times radio heading off on chorley airlines looking at referendums around the world so let's hop back on the plane Oh, it was a long old flight, that one. 20 hours from Kazakhstan to Sydney because Australia are holding a big, big referendum on the Indigenous Voice. It's taking place on October the 14th. Uh, well, we can speak to Latika Burke from the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Latika. Good day, Matt. Uh, right, take us through what this referendum is on and what will happen if it passes. So the referendum will be held on October 14 and it essentially asks Australians to approve an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So this would be an advisory body comprised of Indigenous leaders who would then be able to tell the federal government what it believes should be policy on any policies that affect Indigenous Australians. Why does that need a referendum? Why can't the parliament or the or the government just create a body like that? Well, we've had bodies in the past and some of those have been disbanded because they've been ineffectual or there's been issues of governance or that they just simply have not worked. The main problem is what we call in Australia closing the gap. And this is the divide between life expectancy and outcomes for Indigenous Australians versus non-Indigenous Australians. And they are bad. And some of those measures are actually going backwards. So about seven years ago, uh, some leaders in the Indigenous community came together and formed uh, a statement uh, from the heart, they call it, and came up with this idea. Now, there are two separate uh, concepts here. One is recognising Indigenous Australians in the federal constitution, uh, saying that they were there first and what had happened to them and acknowledging that. The second component of that, but related in this same question, will be about approving the voice to parliament. And that, of course, is the most contentious part. So what is the argument against it, given, as you were saying, that the, the life chances of Indigenous people are, are less good? Uh, and uh, this is, I mean, it's an advisory body, it doesn't fundamentally change the powers of, of the parliament. What What's the argument against it? 
Well, there's many arguments against it, actually, and this is one of the huge problems the Yes campaign is facing because, as you say, if it's an advisory body that doesn't have power over executive government and the Prime Minister has been very, very careful to stress that it will not have any veto, then people say, well, what's the point? Um, the Yes campaign would say, well, it would be a very uh, brave government that would ignore the advice of the Indigenous community that's just been formed and acknowledged in the constitution to advise government. So then you say, well, is it acting as a quasi-veto then after all? So that's one of the uh, first contradictions. Um, there's a lot of concern within the Australian community that this is excessive, this uh, goes over its remit. And Australians are very, very cautious by nature about changing the constitution. Currently, the polls have this down at 43% in favour, and that's a huge slump from the start of the year when there was a majority in favour. So as time has gone on and the date gets closer, Matt, and people take more of a considered look at this, it actually appears they're turning their backs on this proposition. But, of course, we won't know for sure until October 14. And I was reading that um, Australia's not had a successful referendum, which has voted yes to anything in almost 50 years. Um, why yeah, per persevere with this thing if, if, if in the end, uh, Aussies just say no? We, we have a very conservative electorate on the front of changing the constitution. One thing to keep in mind, we have a written constitution. So to change it, unlike the British... Uh, we have to ask for a majority of the voting public, but also a majority of the states. And that's a, a very, very high hurdle to cross. And in fact, back when the uh, Yes campaign for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament was looking a bit stronger, there were even then some concerns that some of the no vote could be so strong in states like Queensland or Western Australia, they could actually depress uh, the national vote so much that we could get a scenario where enough states approved it, but not enough of the population. Oh, now, right now, that scenario is not even looking likely. It's looking more probable that it will be just no, no. Um, but Australians don't like to change the constitution. You're absolutely right. The last one we had was about a republic, and that was also no, and no prime minister has gone back to the, the people with a proposed change to the constitution ever since. Um, just finally, is this turning into a sort of culture war issue that actually, it, it, far from furthering the cause of the Indigenous people, by pitching them against other people who probably may not have given it a lot of thought before, you actually might end up setting back their cause by creating a sort of angry debate about it. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what is unfolding across Australia now. Now, no uh, referendum gets up unless... Uh, traditionally, it has the support of both the big political parties, the Liberal and the Labor Party. Now, the Liberal and the Nationals who formed the, the coalition opposition, they were in government until the change of government to Labor a couple of years ago. They oppose this. So that's hurdle number one, let alone the other uh, mm. actual thresholds we just talked about in, in constitutional change being approved. And so now what we're, we're seeing take place is a huge argument between the right and left, although... You do have to be very careful. There's a lot of left-wing supporters who also do not support an Indigenous voice. People who would have voted for the change in government, for example, will uh, vote no against this and for a variety of reasons. And so, yes, you are seeing this take a uh, political front stage. The opposition leader has actually called on the Prime Minister to can this referendum right now, um, saying that it should only go to the people when they have consensus because because of the caution Australians exercise in, in changing the constitution, 
usually it is the case that you really do have to build a huge public consensus with both sides of, of parliament behind it before you take it to the people. Now, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is saying, no way, he he still wants to go ahead with this vote on October 14. But I think, Matt, if we have a discussion, say, October 15, and uh, the voice did not get up, a lot of these questions you're asking will be coming out with much more political force from the left as well. Well, we're fascinating to see what happens. We'll keep an eye on that. Was it October the 14th? Uh, Latika Burke, really good to speak to you there uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, taking us through the referendum in Australia. Oh, that's quite a bit faster than I was necessarily expecting. <laughs> uh, that's uh, me on a plane uh, flying back uh, from uh, Sydney to uh, Liverpool, and then it's a short train ride. This is complicated uh, to Blackpool. So Blackpool, our final stop on our tour of referendums around the world. The council's holding a referendum to give community powers over any new developments in the neighbourhood of Martin Moss. Well, Stephen Woodhouse is chairman of the Martin Moss Forum. Uh, Stephen, what was it about uh, Britain's national experience of referendums that made you think you wanted to have one locally? Good morning. Uh, This was not something that we planned. Uh, This was a request that we look at having a referendum to take control of planning and other small issues in the Martin Moss area. under the 2016 Locality Act. And the council asked us to form a committee and ask the residents of the area if this is what they wanted to do. Uh, So the committee met in 2018 and we asked the public if they would like us to try to write a neighbourhood plan. So what you're at the time? Tr- yes, I go. Very few people knew what this involved, and I'm not sure even the council knew what was involved. <laughs> um, so uh, you're you're now having a, a referendum on it. Is this basically the ultimate test of NIMBYs versus YIMBYs, the people who want more development and the people who don't? I would say very few people want more development. The question lies in the big landowners, whether they would like big estates and to cash in on the land that they own. But there are few people, most people, because this is a very strange area. It was mostly horticulture from the 1930s onwards. And people have plot sizes of around an acre to like our plot is nearly three acres. those people don't really want to have 15 houses to the acre, which is what the government would like us to build. And in order to stop having the government's policy imposed on us, we would write something that the residents want. And so uh, is it getting heated? Is it hotting up? No, it's not. (laughs) uh, No, it's not. Because the reality is that Blackpool Council is pushed at all directions, staff-wise, time-wise. I'm not sure that it was ever intended that we actually produce this plan and get it to go to referendum. And they've really, although they started out very enthusiastic, their enthusiasm died very quickly. If they'd have given us a lot of help, we could have done this two years ago. But pandemics and other things intervened. 
So this, we, sorry, go on. we're now sort of at a stage where we've done the plan, we've asked everything, they have no choice but to do it. So the referendum's on uh, the 5th of October, uh, what, yep. saying, do you want Blackpool Council to use the neighbourhood plan for Martin Moss to help it decide planning applications in the neighbourhood area? Yeah. Um, what do you think will happen? Um, the the Well, there's two things that have happened. One is we couldn't get information out of electoral services until this afternoon, which makes, makes it very close to the uh, actual referendum itself. So we'll go have a meeting this afternoon and we'll start our campaign. Um, it's getting apathy. The people who have strong feelings against it will turn out. Yeah. The people with strong feelings for it will turn out. But really, we've got 812 voters and it's the middle people that we have to get yeah, involved. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck with it, Stephen. Um, you've got so it's not very long at all, is it? Until the the fifth of October, was it? Couple, no. two or three weeks. Um, Stephen, really good to speak to you. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll maybe we'll, we'll come back to you and see what happens at the end of it all. Uh, Stephen Woodhouse, there, chairman of the Martin Moss Forum, uh, where they're going uh, to the polls in Martin Moss uh, in uh, just a couple of weeks' time. Right, uh, that brings us to the end of our tour of the globe. So I'll probably do a wishy soon. Just hop on a plane back from uh, from uh, Blackpool to Times Radio Towers. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch. You can email me, Matt, at times.reddit, or post a review. Maybe not just about my comments about Rory Stewart, which seems to have got some of you rather agreed. Anyway, hit subscribe so you don't miss any future top-quality content. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.